0: I came across an interesting article in The Economist a few weeks ago. Uh, the article was called The Partisan Brain, and it uh, m- made the point, quoting a number of different research projects, that uh, the partisanship appears to be hardwired in us. Uh, among the, among the, the uh, surveys, they, among the studies they, they uh, cited, Uh, was uh, one done by uh, Yale researchers. You might find this humorous. Uh, They they recruited over a 1,000 subjects and uh, uh, gave them a test and gave them a bunch of statistics and said, now, using these statistics, can you determine the effectiveness of hand lotion? And uh, needless to say, uh, the, the people in the survey who were good with math were able to prove the effectiveness of hand lotion, which was not much. (laughs) And the people who were not good at math didn't prove anything. But then they gave them a second uh, study, a, a bunch of statistics. But to do the study, you would require exactly the same arithmetic, the same mathematical operations, same statistical operations. And the question was, uh, can you from these statistics determine the effectiveness of handgun control in reducing crime? Now in this survey, uh, uh, those who are good at math and who happen to be Republicans proved without a question of a doubt that handgun control had nothing to do with crime. And those who were Democrats were able to prove with the same statistics and the same mathematical operations that handgun control was very effective in controlling crime. This is no surprise, is it? Um, And that, um, among many other studies, uh, showed to the researchers that uh, partisanship is something we're born with. And I guess the the theory behind that is that Uh, This evolved in an evolutionary way. In other words, the tribes or the clans and the families, the societies where people stuck together were able to survive in in troubled times, more difficult times, uh, and those that were fragmented were not. Those who expressed loyalty were uh, not only survived, but thrived, and those where there was a lot of disloyalty Disintegrated and disappeared. And that is also true in the life cycle of a family, clan, or empire. Something to think about, actually. So perhaps it is the case that we can't rise above this genetic, eh, maybe not genetic, this learned characteristic of partisanship. But I know that Jesus would not agree. Jesus' whole ministry was about rising above partisanship, reaching out beyond clan and tribe and family, engaging others who were not part of our group. Jesus <laughs> cured this Syrophoenician woman. Jesus, the, 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 the devout Jewish rabbi, Healed the Syrophoenician woman, the slave of the Roman centurion, the the, uh, Samaritan uh, uh, leper, was found by his disciples to be in conversation with a Samaritan woman. Now that's two strikes, because a devout Jew would never approach a Samaritan, ever. Uh, And a devout Jew would never engage a woman in conversation who he did not know. But there was Jesus, breaking all these social barriers. In fact, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans is somewhat in- instructive. Uh, you probably know all this, but um, the Samaritans are the result of the uh, uh, S- uh, Syrian invasion of the, what was called the Northern Kingdom, the northern part of Israel, uh, 700 years before Jesus. And, when they, and they invaded, uh, and when they won, uh, which they did easily. They uh, they uh, p- pulled into exile a large number of uh, of the uh, uh, Jewish uh, 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 citizens of the northern kingdom and brought in uh, from from other parts of their empire uh, uh, citizens who were not Jewish and who were not from Israel but had other traditions. Were of other other uh, 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 genetic backgrounds and other faith traditions, and the point of doing that, there were, the Assyrians were not dumb. The point of doing that was that it would destroy the cohesion of the of the of the of the, of the society. It would it would uh, break down the the kind of uh, partisanship that uh, would hold the society together because they all intermarried. And by the, time, by the time of Jesus and from before, the Samaritans were thought of by devout Jews as a mongrel race, not unworthy, totally unworthy. They were genetically not like us. And not only that, they, had, they, they did a few things, had a few customs that were Jewish, but they also had a lot of customs that were not Jewish. So we, because we Jews are devout and thoughtful and reverent, have nothing to do with them. They're not like us, unless you're Jesus, who said it's important to reach out beyond the bounds of propriety to people not like us. One could say the cornerstone of his ministry was that, was to break down the barriers that divide people. In, uh, in uh, 1821, 1831, a Frenchman uh, uh, traveled to uh, the United States and um, wrote a diary about his experience there. Here, he um, Alexis de Tocqueville. He uh, uh, wanted to f- explore the new nation that was uh, the United States and wanted to write home to, to France about it, which he did. And, and he saw in the United States a great um, uh, energy and enthusiasm, a boldness, a, a, a kind of courage to expand, to grow, to build, uh, using the limit, seemingly limit, limitless natural resources to build a great nation. But he also pointed out what he called the American Dilemma. The American Dilemma was was this, that uh, while uh, espousing uh, that all people were created equal, we casually enslaved thousands upon thousands of African, black Africans, depriving them of the very rights that we said were inalienable, the rights to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And seem to be oblivious to the obvious contradiction, to the hypocrisy of that. Well, needless to say, the legacy of slavery is still with us, eh? We've come a long way. People of color enjoy all of the rights of uh, everyone else, legally. But you and I both know that that's not the case in every place, in every way. That we still, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes very consciously, deprive communities of color of the rights that others of us are privileged to enjoy. The, the uh, 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 the the, the uh, Brian Stevenson, who I think has spoken here, uh, Brian Stevenson was a Harvard-trained lawyer, uh, executive director of the Equal Justice Institute in Montgomery. Uh, wonderful speaker, very compelling. Uh, says that uh, uh, points out that communities of color are also communities of poverty, and the, um, the anecdote. The opposite of poverty is not wealth, says Stevenson, but justice. Something we all need to remember, all need to keep in mind. This week, we celebrate and give thanks for the ministry of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, some of us are of an age to remember Dr. King. Uh, and the the profound impact he had on American society while he lived. It's impossible to stand here and and extol the impact, uh, his greatness and the impact that he had. But let me just read you a bit of what Howard Thurman said about Dr. King. Uh, Howard Thurman was uh, was called by some the uh, the uh, 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 chaplain of the civil rights movement. He taught Dr. King at Boston University and uh, also taught at Howard. Here's what he had to say. Martin Luther King was the living epitome of a way of life that rejected physical violence as the life of a morally responsible people. Perhaps his greatest contribution to our times was not to be found in his charismatic power Nor is it to be found in his particular courage. Nor is it found in the gauntlet which he threw down to challenge the inequities and brutalities of a not-quite-so-humane people. But rather, it was something else. Always of his, he, he always spoke out of the context of his own religious experience. He put the center of his own experience Um, He found at the center of his religious experience a searching ethical awareness. To condemn him, to reject him, was to reject the ethical insight of the faith he proclaimed. Racial prejudice was not to be regarded as merely un-American or undemocratic, but as a mortal sin against God. Dr. King's secret, if you will, was that he truly believed that Jesus meant it when he said, you have to love your enemy. This is not hyperbole. This is what Jesus actually meant, that you have to love your enemy because as King said more than once, hate begets hate, violence begets violence disregard begets disregard love begets love and we christian people are called to love but in that love we cannot in our own lives in our own in, in, in the way we live overlook the injustices that happen all around us again sometimes obvious, uh, sometimes subtle, but it's up to us to claim the same moral authority that Dr. King claimed whenever we see an injustice of any sort, the slightest slight, the time a clerk in a store disregards someone who's standing in line who happens to be a person of color. All of those things, all of those little tiny things need to be pointed out or else we're complicit in the continuation of this racial injustice that our nation continues to suffer from. It's easy to respond in a hostile way, or, a, or, or, a way or, or to just disregard what we see. But that's not who we're called to be. That's not the people we're called to be. We're called to be people who are fully prepared to reach out beyond the limits of our own experience, to overcome this interior looking self preservation way of being, and to think of the larger civilization, the part, the civilization to which we are. Uh, of which we are a part, and which can benefit only if we take this our moral authority seriously. And so we do. We 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 reach out. We reach we reach out in love, but that does not mean that we reach out um, in a very in a in a soft in a soft and uh, and compromising way. We hate, need to be uncompromising when it comes to racial injustice. We have to overcome this partisan piece of us, which may have been helpful in primitive times, but is not helpful today. It's the only way we can overcome the great disparities, the great distrust that sometimes paralyzes us, sometimes paralyzes the nation is if we can learn to love one another, even the people that aren't exactly like us. One time, Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, once there was a man who went up from Jericho to Jerusalem and he was fallen upon by bandits and left for dead beside the road. And along came a, uh, along came a, and along came a Levite, another temple official, and they paid no attention, and, and then along came a Samaritan who picked him up and took care of him. We tend to um, reduce that story to just a question of we need to help one another. But it goes way beyond that because it wasn't, that, that story would have been along came the priest and the Levite and a nice boy from town who picked up the, you know, the wounded man and took him to took him to the end the to be taken care of. That's that story, but that's not the story Jesus told. Jesus told the story of the guy who we think of as anathema. That's the person who picked up the wounded man. And it's even more compelling if you view it from the point of view of the victim. Because for the point of view of the victim, our salvation may well be in the hands of the people we think as other, may well be in the hands of the people we're most uncomfortable with. It's a cliche to say the world's getting smaller and it's a cliche to say it's all one world, but it's a theological truth as much as a geopolitical truth. Because in Christ, there is no east or west. In him, no north or south. Just one great fellowship of love around the whole wide earth. Amen.